This is Threshold. I'm Chad Somala. Three decades in endurance sport as an athlete, advocate, coach, organizer, and commentator gives me a broad and unique perspective from many angles of endurance sport. As an athlete, I got to the threshold of the elite level and competed on the World Cup and at the World Championships in my sport. It wasn't an illustrious career or anything, but it led me to digging deeper and making a home in endurance sport first as a national team coach, then as a high school coach, and finally an NCAA coach, building a program from the ground up. And as you may know from this call, here comes Diggins! Oh, in the outside! And it is yes! Jesse Diggins! I have been delivering the two sports I'm most associated with, cross-country skiing and biathlon, for NBC Sports viewers for the last two decades. If you're into the nitty-gritty of endurance sports, or you just like these sports and maybe have a little more interest in going deeper on some of the topics we brush over on a TV broadcast, Threshold, this podcast, begs to go deeper on all of it. Cross-country skiing, biathlon, cycling, distance running, maybe some triathlon, and maybe who knows what else we'll get into, but we fully intend to run the gamut of endurance sport topics. This podcast can be your threshold to that deeper understanding of these sports, or at least something like that. So welcome to Threshold. Let's get into today's topic. Lillehammer, Norway, December 1996. The sport of biathlon tries a new concept on its World Cup circuit, a competition in which the winner of the sprint competition is pursued the following day by the rest of the field based on their finish time behind the winner. The result? A four-way sprint finish for the victory in the men's race, perhaps the most thrilling finish in the history of the sport to that time, on the first try. Eurovision executives ink a four-year TV rights deal with the International Biathlon Union the modern biathlon World Cup was born. We really saw, um, you know, biathlon grow to become the most popular winter sport on television in Europe. That's Max Cobb, an International Biathlon Union Executive Board member and our guest today. Our first guest on Threshold is a man who's been around the sport for decades, the sport of biathlon that we teased with on the on the uh, opening of the show, Max Cobb, the CEO of the U.S. Biathlon and a longtime member wearing multiple hats for the International Biathlon Union. In fact, Max, the only thing that I can really remember is your, your CEO of U.S. Biathlon title. So basically, it's safe to say that you've seen everything there is to see in the world of biathlon over the last two decades. <laughs> and, uh, very nearly. I traveled with the team, as you remember, um, you know, throughout the 90s as a manager and ski tech and um, high performance director um, and uh, have been a part of every Winter Olympics since uh, 1992 and all but one world championship in biathlon during those years too. Well, I think that uh, you're alluding to something that we should we should uh, disclose is that we've known each other for a long time. Like we're, we're personally very good friends and, and that's probably why on my first podcast, I can pull somebody from an international federation who's on the executive board, uh, somebody at your stature. So, Max, uh, let's 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 go back to that that uh, that day we talked about in the intro of this podcast. That day in Lillehammer, 1996. I was actually there. I didn't qualify in the top 60 for that very first pursuit. Um, I was well outside the top 60 that day, to be to be quite honest. But I watched it. I was on the sideline at the finish line in Lillehammer. Were you there, Max? Were you at that I event? Was. Yeah. Nobody really knew what to expect. We had to sprint the day before, just like it's done today in biathlon. So, just to, to if you don't, if you're not really familiar with biathlon, when I was an athlete in up to 1996, uh, there were basically three events. There was a sprint, 
There was an individual and there was a relay. But um, it was a pretty, pretty formulaic thing up until that day. And then they tried to do this pursuit for the first time. And I th- do you think they got the idea from Cross Country Max? Is that where you think that idea came from? Boy, I, you know, I don't know, Chad. There, um, you know, certainly there were a lot of creative efforts to try and capture the same kind of drama that we all enjoy in the biathlon relay um, in an individual right. start event. And and I think that the pursuit was really um, based on that and and. You know, during those years, you know, cross country was also innovating with different start um, formulas. And so it's hard to say what where the seeds really began. But the effort was to come up with something that would capture the same kind of drama we have in the in the relay. But to, but to to just to just replay that a little bit that now that we can ha- ask you your perspective on that I know I saw it but I was not you know working in an organizational stand uh, perspective I was an athlete that just saw it and it was it was thrilling it's not really thrilling I look, went back to look at the results and in my mind it was like a photo finish but it really wasn't it was a couple seconds between each each of the three guys but they were all together with a K to go which you know biathlon had never really seen anything like that so Max. You probably know a little bit more of the inside story on that. Three different nations on the podium on this spectacular event. And and the IBU goes in and signs a multi-year deal on television just off that pursuit event. Can you tell us a little bit about how that that day happened and how that contract came about just from the lore of the sport and and what that really did to, to, to give Biathlon the trajectory we have seen since? At that time, Chad, I was, um, you know, waxing skis and organizing transportation and probably standing, you know, if not next to you, near you, (laughs) watching (laughs) the race happen. Um, But, you know, I I think that that was sort of the beginning of biathlon's golden era on television, where um, you really could understand half of our disciplines without being an expert on the sport. And I think that was something that had plagued um, biathlon in, in in its early years was that, you know, with the individual competition, which was the original one from 1960, um, you know, that adding a minute of time for each missed target um, was really complicated for fans to follow on. And it, it's hard for that race to really be appealing to a mass audience of people who aren't experts. Um but, you know, the relay always was. The relay was something everybody could understand. Head-to-head, first one over the line wins. Dueling battles on the range, shot for shot, and um, using the extra rounds. And I think what, what we saw with the, you know, first pursuit was that that same drama existed. And it existed even better, actually, because as they came to the range, there were usually more athletes there. As you know, Chad, from being an athlete, the the pressure that you feel when you're head-to-head with an athlete and, you know, fighting for the podium, um, that is a completely different thing than the environment you're in when you're in in an interval start race, knowing that every shot counts, but not feeling that same pressure like, oh my gosh, I'm in first place. If I clean my targets here, I win this race. And and I think that was the drama that really um, played out with the pursuit and made it a huge success. And um, and everybody everybody could see that. Um, and the you know the initial um, broadcast rights deal um, was you know by today's standards really modest. 
but it was revolutionary in beginning the trajectory for the IBU. Yeah, so so let's unpack that a little bit. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. So since that that first pursuit, we've seen uh, a proliferation of new events tried, and some are being used a little bit more frequently, some a little bit less frequently. It seems that you know we have we have an IBU Cup that has kind of taken as a minor leagues for the sport that that different disciplines are being tried at. Uh, how how you know where did things go from the pursuit? I know we we, we ended up with a mass start, but talk a little bit about how that that sort of created the the template for the future of biathlon and and what happened with the tv ratings over the next 10 years from 1996 say to 2006 to the the torino olympics yeah exactly so over those intervening 10 years we really saw um you know biathlon grow to become the most popular winter sport on television in europe and a lot of that chad was driven by the german market as you remember during that time you know, the Germans were a force and there were times when they would, you know, sweep the the podium and, you know, not that the Norwegians wouldn't do that occasionally either, but the German market, you know, with 85 million people in the country is just huge. And having the um, two World Cups every year held in Oberhof and Ruppolding with 30,000 fans showing up um, to cheer on their their hometown favorites, um, you know, that together with the broadcast ratings really just made biathlon blossom into this, um, you know, winter sport phenom. Um, and I, and I think honestly, it shocked a lot of people in, um, at FIS and in other winter sports when they could see the amazing ratings that biathlon had and, Everybody could see, you know, the drama that were that was behind those ratings. Um, so it really, it really changed things. It it brought to life, um, you know, the opportunity for IBU to support the national federations in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think that was really, really well done um, because what it meant was that even um, smaller federations that you know, weren't as wealthy as the mighty Germans and Norwegians and Russians, um, still had a chance to grow a grassroots biathlon program in their country, have some support from the IBU to do it, have good prize money for the athletes um, that, you know, created the drive to want to be standing on the podium um, as a biathlete. And all those things together um, resulted in a huge number of nations that any given day could stand on the podium and and I think that has really helped biathlon be a major um, TV sport all across Europe because um, nearly every Central European country has an athlete who has the potential to stand on the podium. So, so that's a great point, Max, that it's, it's sort of a, it's an every man in every country sport. So, but, but the German, you hit on, you, you hit on the German point. You talk about huge ratings. Can you, can you give us a, a, a metric that gives us an idea of how many people in Germany watch the biathlon world cup or the world championships or the Olympics on ZDF, their national sending or ARD, the two, the two national broadcasters in, in Germany? Sure. Yeah. I mean, just ballpark figures, Chad, um, the Olymp Olympics from Pyeongchang, uh, they had 
8 million viewers watching live. Um, it was must-see TV in Germany for the for the German fans. So, you know, I, I think a, a really great um, day for um, biathlon in Germany. You'll see fans at, at 6 million for a World Cup, um, maybe a little more than that for a World Championship. Um, but it's not at all uncommon to have, you know, 4 or 5 million Germans watching live uh you know, for just our, our normal World Cup, World Cup series. Um, so really a, a huge fan base. And, and Chad, I think you remember in your early days, you know, we would go to Ruppolding and Oberhof, and if there were, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning, uh, 3,000 people there, we thought that was a huge crowd and a right, big right. deal. And and today in Oberhof, you know, their, their peak attendance is 30,000. And in yeah. Ruppolding, I think their capacity is a little less. I think they can only take 27,000. But they typically hit those marks, um, you know, for at least one day, even during the World Cups that they host. Well, this is great. It's giving the American listeners something of a context from which uh, the sport of biathlon has taken off on the global scale, certainly in Europe. Well, just last week, uh, we've had huge headlines. This, a sport like biathlon that has grown in popularity where you've seen the, the, the – it's become a little more lucrative, we'll say, to the federation, to, to the athletes, but particularly the federation. The IBU has done – and correct me if I'm wrong, they've probably done a pretty good job of negotiating television contracts over the last 20 years. But with that comes the comes the the money and, and, and what happens to the money and how the decisions get made. Um, this week, uh, you know, not so much in America, but it did it did make the New York Times, as, as we both know, um, the the revelations of the inter- internal investigation by the IBU to former president and secretary general Anders Besseberg, the former president and, and longtime president. He was the only president that the, the Federation had until a couple of years ago from the outset and a secretary general, um, both under, you know, under investigation for corruption um, and certainly some so the, the report that the IBU has has released. Um, I read it fully. It's uh, there's some damning information in there. You're 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 a big part of that that effort to clean up the organization. Just just place into context a little bit what what happened and how we got to this week with this with this uh, release of the IBU um, internal investigation on the former president Anders Besseberg and Secretary General uh, Nicole Resch. Right. So the um, the raid happened. I think it was. Um April 10th, 2018, so shortly after the end of the Olympic season, um, and both um, Nicole's residence and the IBU headquarters and Anders' residence were um, raided by the police, and they were taken in for questioning and released, um, but it, it we came to understand that there had been a, a fairly um, massive investigation that had been undertaken by the Austrian um, authorities and um, with cooperation with the Norwegian authorities um, to wiretap um, and monitor communications and activities um, from those two um, owing to a uh, affidavit which was received by WADA um, from Dr. Gregory Radchenkov, who is, of course, the um, sort of... Uh, Moscow lab director who came up with ways to help cover up uh, 
doping in in Russia and um, fled to the U.S. after that was exposed, um, and the the film Icarus um, was made about his his story. The developer of the Russian doping program, Dr. Grigory Rodoshenkov, fled to the U.S. in 2015 with files on that program. He had firsthand knowledge of um, some indications that uh, the Russians were bribing um, the president and, and that the Russians felt they had some level of control um, over him. So those are the, are the allegations that are laid out in, in that report, and, and I think it's... It's a good sign um, that IBU A commissioned this report to be done. It was nearly two years in the in the making, um, and that it's been published because I think we all need to learn how um, not having good governance guardrails can um, lead to people having excessive amounts of control and ultimately having some uh, corruption. So, so I want to put this into context a little bit, Max, for, for our listener, and, and even for you maybe, for example, and get your reaction to this. So the, the report, um, it's, it's been, a, you know, there, there, there are some things blocked, blocked out that, that it isn't the full report for the public to see, but it's, it's enough to get a glimpse. And the, uh, what the New York Times um, published, it, it came out as, and worldwide, it, it's, there are some sordid details to, to the corruption and to the level of influence, um, how, how the Russians perhaps had influence over, over the president of the IBU. Um, but, but here in Finland, where, I, where I'm living with my family, we sat down the day after the report came out and it hit the news. Uh, every day on, on YLE, the Finnish national, national broadcaster, they have a, a sports panel where there's three experts and, and a moderator. And the moderator that day, they led with the IBU story on Honors Besseberg. And my wife is is translating for me as we're eating breakfast, and 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 it comes up, and they describe all the things that came out, and the question from the moderator to the three experts was, um, "What is this? What does it sound like?" And immediately one of the three experts comes in and says, "It sounds like International Sport Federation," and they all three laughed. There's sort of a, a an understanding of those of us in Olympic sport that really the IBU, what what you're dealing with, is really happening in a lot of federations. Is is that a, a fairly accurate statement from your perspective? Um, well, let's, uh, let's, let me answer it this way, Chad. Um, you see people who, who love the sport and want to play a role in helping develop it. Um, and, you know, I, I put myself in, in that category. Um, and I think that um, what, what we have seen over um, the last few years is some stunning corruption come out in international federations. And it start with athletics, which has, you know, rebranded itself as World Athletics now, um, and the Dioc case that is, uh, you know, I believe concluded now um, and resulted in um, really strong uh, 
penalties and, you know, in a court of law. Just to clarify for people, Lamine Diak was involved. He was, a, he was, a, he ran basically the IAAF, the International Track and Field Federation, and clearly enriched himself. I think that that's, that's probably been proven beyond reasonable doubt. So just to, just to uh, let our viewers know, or our listeners know what you were talking about there. Um, Diak has been since, since, uh, since taken out of the, the IAAF picture. And, and you noted, and you noted Grigory Ruchenkov, um, uh, he, you know, you can Google Grigory Rodchenkov, um, and, and you'll find plenty of stuff on him. I just want to, I want to revisit that. Rodchenkov is kind of the linchpin to a lot of these um, corruption issues, with particularly with Russia, because he was an insider. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the legitimacy of Gr- Grigory Rodchenkov's claims? You know, he, you know, the the Russian the Russian side of things is that they, they basically refute him and say that he is. He's he's out for personal gain, and, and you know, um, just just t- speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, certainly, like you said, there was a lot of pushback from within Russia about his lack of credibility. But you know what you what you find from reading the um, report produced by McLaren and putting that together with a leaked database um, that a whistleblower provided, not Rodchenkov, but a different one, um, from the Moscow laboratory, together with the scratches and marks on the bottles and the impossible salt levels. Um, in so just to, just to set this up, uh, in the lab in Russia during the Sochi Olympics, there is there's quite a bit of evidence that the the, um, the the state police for the R- Russian Federation, not not just the Olympic organization, but they helped set up a cheating setup where they would actually break into the urine samples of athletes that they suspected would probably pe- test positive at the Olympics and switch those or, or doctor those urine samples. So go from there, Max. Yeah, no, that, that's it, Chad. And, and um, so they, you know, the FSB, um, according to Rodchenkov, came up with a system to remove the tops of these tamper-proof bottles. So you know, weren't supposed to be able to do that without breaking the, the bottle or the top, um, but they cleverly found a way to do it. Um, but that method actually left scratches and marks inside the bottle top so um, they could see which bottles had been opened. And, and the IOC Oswald Commission um, did you know, extensive work uh, to a- analyze those, um, that evidence. They got extensive uh, interviews and affidavits um, from Rodchenkov. And, you know, from from everything I understand, you know, nearly all of that um, checked out. So um, but I think it's it's really uh, clear that he was on the inside and he's sharing his his recollections um, about what happened there. I guess the other thing I would say, Chad, is that um, it wasn't only Rodjenkov who was blowing the whistle here. There were other whistleblowers working with WADA who um, had, you know, lab experience, one of whom provided that lab database with all the indications of the tests that were covered up um, by the Moscow lab. There, <clears throat> there were also athletes who came forward um, to work with WADA. Um, there's the Stepanovs who, you know, had that famous documentary made by Hayo Sepelt um, that really kicked off this whole thing. 
So, you know, to go back in time, it was that documentary that came out in early December 2014. So sort of 10 months after the Olympics and um, interviewed uh, Yulia and Vitaly Stepanov. Um, they had recorded information about how um, doping worked in Russia and how the system was set up not to catch the people who were doping, but to ensure that they wouldn't get caught. Um, and from there, WADA eventually launched a probe, which first proved it in athletics. And then later on, um, you know, Rodchenkov was interviewed by the New York Times and told the story about passing the urine sample bottles through a mouse hole to replace the urine in them to cover up the doping that was happening in Sochi. It begs the question, though, you've basically been a steward of this sport for most of your life. Um, from your perspective, what do these frauds uh, do and, and how does this corruption, um, this corruption and fraud really affect the athletes when it, when it boils down to, to their experience and their efforts? You know, it, I think it's devastating for athletes to know how hard they're working to you know, provide the anti-doping agency in their country and with the IBU with all their whereabouts. Every single day they have to give where they're going to be for at least one hour that day. And, you know, if if the if they forget to update it or the information isn't accurate um, and somebody comes to check on them, you know, they get they get three strikes when they're not where they said they were going to be within a 12-month period, and then they get a doping ban, which is fair and right, but it's it's hard. It's a lot of work. It's giving up you know, some element of privacy there, um, and the athletes work really, really hard to um, maintain clean sport, and I think what was... What was the silver lining for me when all this was coming out um, in 2016, 2017, 2018 was how the biathlon athletes community rallied together and said to IBU in really clear terms, we want clean sport. We do not, you IBU are not doing enough. Um, we want clean sport. We want you to investigate this and we want you to um, punish anyone who is involved and basically, you know, saying we'll bear any burden to ensure clean sport. And when you look at what the situation was in Russia, it was a system. It really right. was a system. And so it's hard to know what kind of choice those athletes really had being involved in that system. If they wanted to continue in their sport, was it like it was, you know, reported to be in East Germany, where if you weren't taking the little blue pills, you were off the team. We'll probably never know, but um, right. But it definitely was a system, and I, I think that all of us being strong and having good enforcement and good systems and good investigations really helps clean sport. But it also helps avoid the situation where an athlete is forced to do something that they don't want to do. And that's abuse. You know, that's that is another form of athlete abuse. And when you look at it, what was really behind this whole system was a win at any cost approach where they wanted, you know, the, the system that Rodchenkov was involved in was set up to ensure that Russia won the medal count 
in Sochi and that right. they would be victorious. And, um, and that's, you know, that's abuse. That's, that's, you know, using athletes for a, a propaganda and political goal. You know, Max, I know that this has been, this has consumed a lot of your life. And I think that the, the, one of the reasons I wanted you on for my first threshold uh, a podcast was I know the impact that you've had on the sport that I love, that I competed in. And I know how much, what kind of toll this has taken on you over the years. And I, I just want to be one to thank you for the work that you've done because it, it's meaningful stuff. Um, I think about my children, if they were to get into any of these sports, um, what kind of, if that corruption was left unchecked, what, what kind of sport would we have left for them by the time they're that, that age? So uh, I think the athletes, not just in biathlon, but uh, across the Olympic movement, owe you debt of gratitude. Oh, thanks, Chad. And I got to tell you, the, um, you know, I, I have spoken about these issues with so many athletes and it, everyone is aligned in wanting clean sport, wanting an anti-doping system that works. And, you know, WADA's mission is to ensure that every athlete has that fundamental right to clean competition. And, um, you know, I think about it too. I think about teenage kids um, wondering if they, you know, what they need to do to succeed in sport. And I never want anyone to feel like they have to dope to succeed in sport. It should be about training. It should be about coaching. It right. should be about how they can do everything within their body to succeed. And, um, and you know, hopefully... Everything we're doing now um, sends that message. There's a lot of skepticism out there, and it's well-earned skepticism in the in the Olympic sport movement because of all these doping stories. But at the same time, um, if you don't have the stories, you're not catching them, and you're not moving forward. You have to, at some point, you have to you have to do that dance to get it exposed. And I think you and I have been involved with this sport long enough to know that. We, we have really good reason to believe that many of our champions have never doped. Uh, and, you know, I've often said, I've often said um, you know, I love doing my commentary for, for NBC Sports on these sports because I know the athletes. And the, the day any of them tested positive for doping, I would, that would be the last, you wouldn't hear another word from me uh, on a television broadcast. And, and, I, and I mean that to this day. And, and, and that's the thing I want to hit on before we move on to a more positive note and, and preview the world championships is that we have a long history of clean champions, that there are clean champions who have beaten the cheaters. And, and I, get the, I get the frustration and I get the cynicism, but, there, but you, you and I both know there are people who have won a lot of Olympic gold medals in our sport who have been clean, at least as many who have been dirty. Yeah, no question about it, Chad. And and I I honestly believe that um, first of all, the anti-doping system as a system has advanced to the point now where th the level of doping that an athlete is able to risk getting away with and not being absolutely sure they're going to get caught, but risk getting away with, it, it is is very, very narrow compared to what it used to be. Um, right. So that means the advantage they can gain through doping is much less than it used to be. It isn't nothing, but it's less. Right. 
Um, and, and I think that's really important for people to understand. So, you know, when you when you look at results sheets and, and you, you know, watch an event, um, you can be sure that most of the athletes there are clean and are following the rules. And I, and I think that's that's really important. Um, it's one of these fights that will never completely go away. Right. People always try and find um, a way. Some people will always try and find a way to cheat the system. But it's by having really strong pressure from the side of integrity, from the side of clean sport, and having athletes aligned on that, um, that pushes back against the, um, those who, who seek to cheat the system. That's what's really important. And, and so we need to empower and embolden and help um, support every athlete and every coach who um, plays plays clean and plays fair? You know, you're you're almost near the end of the tunnel. You've got the biathlon integrity unit, which is a unit the IBU has put in place to uh, to battle these these corruption charges and, and look into them and try to make sure they never happen again. So what I want to do now with the time we have left is just pivot a little bit and, and kind of get excited. Um, we've we've had a pretty uh, pretty heavy conversation so far. So let's lighten it up a little bit. And and look, you know, we're, we are on the cusp of, we're on the threshold of the World Championships. Uh, Biathlon World Championships, the biggest event of the year every year. Um, it's the b- biggest thing next to the Olympics. Um, they're, they're in Pokluka, Slovenia, which is a beautiful uh, venue set high in in the mountains of Slovenia, um, about a half hour outside the town of Bled. And let me tell you, when the when the pandemic gets under control, if you've never been to Slovenia, um, go. It is a beautiful place. Bled is one of my favorite places. I used to love to be there for the events. I raced horribly at Pokluk. I never had a good race there. It was so high, and the courses just didn't suit me. I needed a glider course, and it, it was even back then. It's a different courses than they are today. But but Max, so just look. Looking at the season we've had so far, um, briefly t- talk about a little bit about what the IBU has done with the COVID situation, um, what you think you've has been successful, what has been a, a particularly a challenge, and maybe you haven't, you know, admittedly haven't done as well as you would have liked to. Um, j- just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, we've had two very successful months uh, on the World Cup, um, so... It, there have been over 8,000 tests um, administered to the teams, so athletes and, and coaches and support personnel, um, in order to ensure that we um, could have a safe and um, permissible environment for the World Cup to happen. And um, basically, you know, that involves people testing before they get to the event, testing as soon as they arrive at the event, being tested every four days. And I, I, I'm I, not 100% sure about the stats, but I believe that we only saw a couple of transmissions actually happen um, from somebody who, um, you know, was found to be infected when they were... Uh, at the World Cup and actually transmitted that to another person who who didn't arrive at the World Cup already infected and, and really one or two and always within the same team. Um, so, you know, so far things have been very successful. Our, our last two weeks of racing was in Antolz, Italy, and over those two weeks we had zero um, athletes or coaches or support personnel test positive for COVID. So going into the world championships, you know, it's it's a whole nother um, thing because teams have been 
training on their own in their own pods and now are going to come back together. So right now, um, I think every athlete who's planning to arrive Monday or Tuesday is, is having their COVID test done. Um, and, you know, hopefully everybody is healthy and can come together again. But uh, I was in non-tolts for, um, for the races there, and I got to say it, it, it really ran well. Um, the athletes were very attentive to it, and everybody's, everybody understands the rules, and they're trying really hard. All right, well, shoot me straight here. Tell me you weren't psyched to, to, to serendipitously fall on a world championships in Polk Luca during a COVID, uh, during a pandemic. I mean, for, for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, Polk Luca is literally, it's 30 minutes into a national forest. There's nothing up there. There's just the venue. There will be no fans. The athletes are, spread themselves out. The team spread themselves out over that, that bled area. And they're not even, re- it's not really even a centralized location where anybody stays. Isn't that right, Max? Yeah, that's right, Chad. I mean, I think all the teams pretty much are staying down in um, in Bled, uh, which is, as Chad described, a beautiful um, village right on the shores of a lake, um, beautiful castle up on top of a cliff and a monastery on an island. If you've seen a picture of a, a lake in Slovenia, it's probably Bled. Uh, and um, as Chad said, you know, Getting spectators up to the venue in Pokluka is is really a challenge, and um, so that's one challenge the organizers, sadly in a way, uh, are not going to have to face. But I think, as you said, um, Bled and Pokluka are you know beautiful, beautiful areas, and the broadcast images, you know, the TV from there will be spectacular. Um, and I think that's the other, you know, thing that's been great to see, Chad, is that um, the broadcasters have not shied away from um, covering the sport, and they've found solutions. I know you you were working remotely calling the races. Um, I think a lot of the broadcasters are doing that, but um, but they found ways to, you know, get the broadcast out there in, you know, a perfect signal, just as it would have been um, done in, in non-COVID times. The people who like to watch biathlon on the NBC platforms of the Olympic Channel and NBCSN are going to get to see a lot, the entire World Championships, in fact, on television. Um, I've looked at the schedule. Almost all of the events from the World Championships will air live on the Olympic Channel, and uh, most will be re-aired. A majority of them will be re-aired on NBCSN later in the day. So, um, uh, so the people who watch those broadcasts, they get my point of view on, on all the time. They they know who I think is going to do what. Um, so, Max, this is your chance to be the, the the color commentator, to be the, the guy inside. So, what story do you most like? Uh, competitively going into these world championships, what what jumps out as you as something uh, people should watch? Boy, I'll tell you, Chad. The you know the season um, has been dominated by a few strong teams. Um, so we've seen uh, the Norwegians and the French and the Swedes and uh, the Germans to some extent. Um, really dominate the uh the scene but um i gotta say you know the russians came on strong in uh Antults, so there was some really good performances there um and you mentioned Yakov fak and um he he is a force and this is his his home venue 
um, you know, which you know as an athlete, it's not always easy competing at home um, because of the pressure there. Uh, on the other hand, I think, you know, Fock is having one of his best seasons in a while right now and definitely a, a lot of hope there. But what's going to be interesting, Chad, is to see, I mean, everybody's been affected by COVID, right? That's just, everybody's right. having a strange season. Um, you know, it looks like the Norwegians in particular um, you know, haven't been all that affected, or if they were affected, it was a positive effect. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it'll be interesting to see as everybody you know has aimed for these two weeks in February to see what other teams are breaking through. You know, will this be the time when the checks get um, get back in there? Uh, you know, and. And I think it's going to be an incredibly exciting um, world championships. But, you know, one of the stunning things for us as biathlon fans is to see um, Johannes Tignus Bo get beaten by his teammates as often as he has. And Absolutely. So we have seen an incredible number of different athletes have World Cup wins. And I can't remember a season in recent years where there's been so many different athletes standing on that first step of the podium at this point in the season. Max, I got to ask you and tell me truthfully, were you listening in on our production meetings this week with NBC crew? Because you, you pretty much you pretty much nailed our high points right there. So so you stole my thunder. We're gonna have those we're gonna have those stories queued up for the for the viewers when, when the world championships start airing on February tenth. So mark your calendars if you want if you're a biathlon fan. If you're not a biathlon fan and you've stumbled across threshold and you've been listening to our talk with Max Cobb, um, be sure to tune in. The world championships get underway February tenth on uh, on the Olympic Channel. Max, um, it's always fun to catch up with you. I love hearing from you. It's been a long time. We'll have to get to together post COVID when we're, when we're in the same place and, and, uh, and, and share some stories and, and, and maybe share a hug. <laughs> Looking forward to it, Chad. And, um, thanks again for the invitation. And I'm so glad you're launching this podcast and, uh, can't wait to hear your calls, uh, of the biathlon world championships. Well, that was Max Cobb from the U S biathlon team and the IBU it's giving us some great insights into the world of biathlon, um, all the good, the bad, the ugly, and and the exciting world championships coming up. I think what, what sits with me most is that um, these sports need people to steward them. Um, that that uh, you look at what happened with a with a, an organization that isn't, you know, it's not Formula One. It's it, it's it's biathlon. It, it does have these uh, this, this great viewership, this great fan base. But it shows you how things can go awry when, um, when the forces uh, of greed and, and fraud uh, work their way into sport. And Max Cobb is a shining example of the kind of people we need more of. And if you like what Max is doing and you, and you feel the same way, get involved at the club level. Get involved at the, with your high school team and, and bring that integrity to sport. We need it like, like never before. And, I, and uh, like I said during the podcast, I want my kids, I want your kids, I want the future generations of people who want to be, who want to get the benefits and love a sport that Max and I have gotten over the years to have that same opportunity without feeling like the the uh, the odds are stacked against them. So thanks for thanks to having, having Max Cobb on this uh, this this first episode of Threshold. Glad you could join us, um, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>